I'd like to begin by asking you to do something that you probably don't do very often. I would like you to look at your hands. Take a minute and look at your hands. Not just a glance at your hands, but I really want you to look at your hands. 27 bones in each hand. 25% of all the bones in your body are in your hands. 14 phalanges, 5 metacarpals, 8 carpals, about 17 muscles in your hands. Uh, your hands tell a lot about you if, you, if you look at them by their size and their shape and their level of hairiness. <laughs> you can tell if you're male or female. If you're looking at a hand and see any rings, those rings may tell you about that person's relationship status. Maybe you see rings on your hand. Your hands probably give you some sort of indication as to your age. Are there uh, spots or wrinkles? Is the skin getting thinner on on your hands? Maybe when you look at your hands, do you see evidence of previous injuries? Uh, Scars. I have a scar on the ring finger of my right hand that I acquired for my swing set in my backyard when I was eight. Uh, Maybe you have a crooked finger. I have one or two that aren't as straight as they are supposed to be. Maybe you see evidence in your hands of uh, bad habits, ripped nails. Is there stress written on your hands? Maybe there's a little bit of stress there. Your hands likely give an indication of your job, don't they? They give it, tell people what you do for a living. I remember um, uh, I was uh, struck at my uncle's funeral when he died a long time ago with the ink stains that were on his fingers there as he laid in the casket. Uh, I shake your hands at the end of the service. Almost everybody's hand I shake. And some of you, because of the work you do, have massive hands. You have big hands that are thick from carrying block or swinging a hammer or moving dirt. I have hands of someone who reads books for a living. That's the way my hands go. I get blisters. I rake for ten minutes and I have blisters. There's a lot about your life written on your hands, isn't there? Your hands are one of the most important aspects of who you are. I was going to make a list of all the things you do with your hands. I couldn't. It was too long. It would be a lot easier to make a list of the things that you do without hands. Some of you, if you didn't have hands, you couldn't talk. You wouldn't know what to say. (laughs) I want to talk to you about hands today. And one of the reasons that I want to talk to you about them is because the Apostle Paul argued that the transformation that comes into a person's life when you encounter the gospel will show up in dozens of ways in your hands. It's important to think about new life when you meet Jesus Christ because uh, new life, the change that takes place when you encounter the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the ways that you can tell if your relationship with God is real. If there's no change, you don't have a real relationship with God. Earlier this month, Andrew Sullivan had an article in Newsweek magazine. It was their annual Easter story where they try to pick on Christianity. And uh, Andrew Sullivan's, uh, the title of his article was, Forget the Church, Follow Jesus. And Andrew Sullivan recommended that we all follow the example of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, our our third president of the United States, used to read the Bible with a razor blade in his hand. Perhaps you've heard this. 
Uh, Jefferson uh, produced his own edition of the Gospels where he uh, eliminated and cut out any reference in the Gospels that spoke to Jesus in terms of supernatural things, any miracles that he did, any supernatural things that Jesus did. He he wanted to get to the essence of Jesus, the moral teacher, and he eliminated anything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that conflicted with his rationalistic, anti-supernatural, reason-centered worldview. This is the way Thomas Jefferson worked. And if it was miraculous and unreasonable, he cut it out of the Bible. Interesting, the last words of the Jefferson Bible are, and they rolled the tomb in front of the sepulcher. Uh, now, uh, one of the problems with that approach to the Gospels is that if you take everything out of the Bible that you don't like or that conflicts with the way you live or the way you think, you will never be confronted, you will never be changed, and you will never have a real relationship with the real God. You've just made God exactly like you. There's no sense of change that's going to take place in that. We have in recent weeks been looking at a passage of Scripture uh, where Paul focuses our attention on this transformation. And the section that we've been looking at is in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn there if you have it with me already. Ephesians chapter 4, these very familiar verses as we're slowly making our way through this book that the Apostle Paul wrote, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Uh, I, I want to ask your indulgence. We've read it all, every week for a long time, but I'm, I'm going to do it again, if you don't mind. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Again, we've read it before, but it's God's Word. It's the most important thing I'm going to say today. So uh, follow along as I read from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Paul writes these words. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, those outside of Christ, unbelievers, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you were heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind. Be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other 
just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, after speaking in broad terms about the necessity and the nature of the transformation that takes place when you turn to Jesus Christ, Paul speaks about specific behaviors, and he starts that in verse 25. We've already talked about lying and speaking the truth. Put off lying, put on the truth. We've talked about sinful, destructive anger. Put off anger that destroys, uh, put on anger that, that seeks to redress injustice. And today we're going to talk in verse 28 uh, from uh, verse 28 about your hands. Actually, there are three different types of, pass, uh, of hands in verse 28 that he talks about when he references stealing here. I want to talk about those three types of hands. One type is commensurate with the old life. One is on the way to the new life. And one is reflective of the new life. These type of hands indicate how real your relationship with Jesus Christ really is. So, three types of hands. First, I want to consider with you grasping hands. Grasping hands. And we're going to talk about thieves in the church. (laughs) Verse 28 says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer. It's a short phrase, but it's a pungent passage. And what puzzles some people when they pick this up is that Paul is writing in the present tense here in this verse. Literally, the text says, let the one who steals or let the one who is stealing right now no longer steal. In other words, Paul is writing to people currently in the church in Ephesus who are stealing. Read this and understand Paul has it in mind that you're sitting next to a thief. Now, we ask when we read this, who who is Paul talking about? I mean, he knows these Christians in Ephesus. Who who does he have in mind? People in the church? Professing believers? These people that he has called and said, you're justified by God, you're in Christ, you're loved by God, they're right now stealing? This must have made small group meetings awkward. Can you imagine what would happen tonight at the end of your small group if your leader said, now, thanks everybody for coming, really happy to have you here now. Something that I, I want to mention to you is that, um, well, last time after small group, we were missing four forks. I'm not sure what happened, but, but, but Sharon, I can see those two extra toilet paper rolls that you stole from the bathroom in your purse, and you've got to put them back. And Gary, you're not hiding those DVDs that you took very well. But Gary, they're my kids' DVDs, all right? What are you going to do? Sell them on eBay? Put them back, Gary. Stop stealing. <laughs> This is the group that represents Christ to the world. It's, it's the group that's supposed to shepherd and care for one another. And there are thieves. Next week, let's imagine you invite a, a friend to come to church and you get out of the car and you say to them, be sure to lock the door because these people will take anything that's not nailed down. <laughs> now, some people think that Paul is talking specifically about Uh, two groups of people in the church. He's thinking about laborers in the church who are taking supplies and things from their employers or that he's thinking about shopkeepers who are cheating their customers. But but the text itself is not limited that way. Paul was writing to a people actually who lived in a culture where there was no such thing as a social safety net and most people didn't make enough money to save anything. So if you didn't get paid that day, you didn't eat. And if you wanted to eat, you had to get food somewhere. And they stole. 
And the way that Paul writes these verses, this, this present tense, let the one who is right now stealing, I, I appreciate that. It doesn't trouble me. It actually helps us, I think, because it should free us to be honest about ourselves. Honest about who we are and where we've come from. I'm not sure how you think about the church or how you think about people who are part of a church, but I think most people assume that if you go to church or you're a part of church, that you should be a better person. You should have better families. We should have better marriages. We should be have better friendships, better morals. It's right for us to talk about the high standards which the Bible calls us to, but it's easy to move from thinking about these high standards that we're in pursuit of to thinking that we are better people just by virtue of the fact that we're here. There's sort of this self-righteous judgmentalism that, that can take place. Now think for a minute, if you, if you would, please, about your attitude towards some of the people that come to your Sunday school class or in your uh, Awana club. Do you ever, are you ever tempted to categorize them? Um, over there, there's the church folk, and they're normal. They're modestly dressed. They know how to act in this building. They know something about the Bible, and they know at least a fake interest when you're talking about it. They're not interested. And over here, we've got the other kids. The other kids that come from the, the broken homes that are, are uh, they, there's so many rough edges, you can't find a smooth spot on them anywhere. Be, be careful about making these sort of divisions here between them and those. Uh, there is one sort of people that comes to church, broken people, all, all of us. We're, we're not better people. And we recognize that that's actually what makes us Christians. The one thing we have in common, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, is that we have recognized that we stand guilty before God in need of forgiveness, in need of redemption. That's what we have in common. We don't bring anything to the table. Uh, the, there are thieves in the church founded by the Apostle Paul. Not surprising. I think about this verse, or this verse actually reminds me of a, a passage in 1 Corinthians 6. Let me read it to you. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, he says to them. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, your, your notion of the church being better people would change if you ever walked in the door and your friend said to you, see, see that guy over there? Before he became part of the church, he was a gay prostitute. Or, uh, you see that, that lady? I, I used to pass her every day when I'd walk into my office complex. She was always sprawled out on the bench uh, in front of my office, drunk as you can believe. Or, or I first met that guy over there when he came to my house and he tried to sell me on a bogus investment. Man, he was a liar. He would lie, cheat people. Let's be honest about who we are and where we really have come from. I was reading recently through the Gospel of John and I came to John chapter 4. It's a very famous and beautiful passage. It's where Jesus talks to the woman who's at the well 
uh, she, she was uh, living with a guy. She had five husbands. Uh, Jesus brings this up. She's very quick to change the subject. <coughs> I've heard people talk about John 4 and wonder, it's, it's amazing how Jesus talks to her. Jesus could talk to anybody. He talks to everybody in the Gospels. It's amazing to see how he draws her out. And sometimes I've heard people say, now this is, based on John 4, how you can talk to people who have such mess in their lives. I think sometimes that we would do better talking to people who have mess in our lives if we realize that in John 4, we're not supposed to see ourselves as Jesus. We're supposed to see ourselves as the thirsty woman with the mess. All of us. Let us be honest here. Uh, we, we, uh, 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 this, this thing that Paul is talking about, this thievery that is his focus, is one reflection of how broken we are. That's his focus, stealing. Stealing. One of the ways that our alienation from God, our condition as sinners, is manifest. Stealing is, of course, if I were to define it, taking things that are not yours. Stealing is a way to get what you want without having to earn it or work for it. And and, and think of all the evidences of a hard heart that are incumbent in stealing. What else does stealing involve? Stealing involves deception. You often have to lie in order to steal something. Stealing uh, involves lovelessness. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself when you rip something off from his house. Uh, uh, Stealing involves self-absorption. You're only thinking about what you want. Laziness. Thievery is about getting what you want without paying for it, without earning it. And like lying, there are a multitude of ways of stealing. There's shoplifting. Uh, Taking office supplies home from work. Uh, using unauthorized software on your computer. 67% of all the software on computers in the United States is pirated software. Uh, Collecting pirated music, stealing somebody's music, plagiarizing someone else's paper, and turning it in as your own. It's a form of stealing. Uh, Doing personal work on company time. Do you know that the likelihood that you will steal from your company increases as your education increases and is your responsibility as at work increase? It's the people who have the most degrees and the most authority that are the most inclined to steal. I deserve it because my company doesn't compensate me well enough for the levels that I have reached. So I deserve this from my company. In our world, we have forms of stealing that the Apostle Paul never dreamed of. Uh, identity theft, securities fraud, tax evasion, insurance fraud. You can steal something from someone thousands of miles away who will never see your face. Uh, stealing is the norm in our culture, actually. Albert Moeller says that you can tell how stealing is the norm by any time you visit the mall and by standing in the parking lot for a few minutes. What happens when people get out of their car in the parking lots? They hit this little button on this key fob and their car blinks and chirps at them to tell them that it's secure. There are so many blinks and chirps now that when you go to visit the mall, when a car alarm actually does go off, you don't assume that the car's been stolen. You assume it's some fool who can't operate his key fob and hit the wrong button. 
If you leave something valuable in your unlocked car or you leave money on a table, are you more surprised when you return if it's there or if it's not there? We live in a stealing world. Uh, Martin Luther said, if we look at, all, at mankind in all of its condition, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. Here's a manifestation of the old life, of our disconnect from God, of our alienation from one another. We naturally have grasping hands. Now, in the rest of verse 28, Paul takes us two steps beyond where we find ourselves outside of the gospel. And we're going to talk about the second type of hands that I'll describe as working hands. Working hands. Verse 28, the next phrase, well, we'll start at the beginning. He who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his own hands. Now, Paul here is plugging into a number of different themes that run through the Bible. And I'm going to uh, mention briefly three ways in which what Paul is talking about connects with uh, uh, work and what the Bible says about work and thievery. Let's think on the macro level first. Uh, Paul is speaking from a worldview of the Bible where the Bible connects work and property. The Bible connects work and property or work and reward. Now, again, we're entering into a moment here into large-scale economic thinking. Um, I'm not an economist, but if you walk into any economic discussion and debate, you should do so with a mind shaped by the biblical, by a biblical worldview. The Bible upholds the dignity and value of private personal property. The Bible is not a Marxist manifesto. The Bible speaks about the value and the dignity inherent in private property and it connects work and private property together. Just think, if you, if you want to know what the Bible says about private property, read the book of Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy and find how many places in the Bible, in that, those books, it talks about uh, there are laws related to the regulation of private property. What to do if something steals someone, uh, something. What, what to do if your oxen eats your neighbor's corn and how you respond to that, or wheat. Uh, what to do if you're borrowing something and it breaks? What to do if um, uh, you accidentally lose something and somebody else finds it? What, where's the law related? The, there are regulations upon regulations in the Bible about protecting and recognizing private property. And, and, and property is the reward of work. God commands that we work, and the reward of work is property. And whenever we think about the biblical view of work and wealth, you have to keep these two things together. And immediately here we have a problem, both from the political right and the political left. The political left often talks in terms of fairness, or sometimes overcoming justice. And sometimes in the name of fairness or overcoming justice, it tries to separate the two, uh, separate work and, and property. And they speak sometimes as if the solution to injustice is easily solved. All we need to do is take some from you and give some to you and everything will be just fine. Now, Albert Moeller asks us to imagine what would happen if on any given day, at any given moment, we could take all the world's wealth and divide it equally between everybody. Just imagine this 
one day where somebody with a grand calculator could figure it out. I I guarantee you that everybody on the earth in this room uh, would be poorer than you are right now. In fact, if you make more than $50,000, you are part of the 1%, the real 1%, despite what people who occupy places might think. Actually, if you make more than $25,000, you are wealthier than 90% of the people in the world. If you have $15,000 a year that you make, you are wealthier than 75% of the people in the world. Uh, how long, let's say we could divide all of the wealth equally between all the people in the world, how long do you think that situation is going to last that we're all equal in what we have? Maybe about two minutes. Because somebody's going to drop something. Somebody's going to lose something. Somebody's going to make a good trade. Somebody's going to make a bad trade. Somehow, the values are going to change almost instantaneously. We will never be able to engineer that sort of equality and to talk like it's an easy problem to solve is foolishness. But the political right is not innocent here either. Those on the right make the mistake of talking about the relationship between work and property as if they were no problems at all. It's capitalism, and capitalism sorts everything out, and capitalism solves all of the problems and makes sure everything is fair. Capitalism may be better than anything else, but it's not perfect. Now, let's, let's make this relationship between work and property even more difficult to think about, shall we, for a minute? Let's imagine here that you go to the store and you find something and it's unbelievably cheap. You want to buy a, a pair of shoes that are unbelievably cheap. And then you find out that those shoes are made in a factory in Bangladesh that play, pre, pays little children, five cents an hour to work 14 hours a day making these shoes. That's why they're so cheap. Well, the solution, that that's not fair. That's, that is not right. It's capitalism, but it's not right because you have separated work and wealth. Those people are not, those children are not being adequately compensated for the work that they're doing. That, that, that's stealing, is it not? Because you're separating, you're taking their labor and not fairly compensating them for it. So, you might say, well, I'll never buy those shoes. I will not buy those shoes at all. Easy solution. Except for the fact that that may be the only five cents those kids are ever going to get. If if you don't buy them, they're not going to get paid at all. So what do we do now? Should you buy them so they get the five cents? Or should you not buy them so that they're not exploited and starving? (laughs) Ha ha. Uh, How quickly can capitalism solve the problem? Well, let's look at verse 28 from a different angle, if if we can here, as we, we think about this. Paul is calling the Ephesians to follow his own example. He's calling the Ephesians to follow his own example. The Bible does talk about the relationship between work and property and how they should be linked together. That's true. But on a smaller level here, Paul is concerned with the Ephesians following what he has done. I noticed the phrase in Ephesians 4.28, with his own hands. Now, Paul here is not demanding that the only legitimate form of work is manual labor. But, you know, if you read in the epistles, Paul often wrote about himself and his own hands, working with his own hands. 
In fact, that same exact phrase appears in 1 Corinthians 4.10 where he says to the Corinthians, I have supported myself with my own hands. Paul was a tent maker. Uh, Literally, he made tents. Either he made them out of fabric made of goat hair. We're not sure. That might be bad. Or maybe Paul made... That was not even worth saying. I don't know why I said that. I don't know what happened. Okay, so anyway, or uh, Paul might have made tents out of leather. We're not, we're not sure. And it, by all accounts, as, as we can tell, Paul traveled from town to town, and he would set up shop in maybe the town marketplace selling tents. So maybe he wasn't selling uh, like tents that people would live in. Maybe he sold uh, tents that a, a marketer would have, a stall. Maybe that's the kind of tents he sold. Uh, Paul supported himself, and he supported his apostolic team with tent making. In fact, Paul probably spent most of his time in his life working on tents. His apostleship was actually a side job that he did once he'd earned enough money to feed himself for the day. Uh, If you wanted to talk about spiritual things, most of the time your conversation probably would take place while Paul sat on a workbench with scissors or a needle. This is the way Paul lived. This is what Paul did with most of his time. He worked. Uh, His ministry, though, was something on the side that he did, which is true for almost everybody in this room. Paul didn't just work. He labored. This is, this is an intense word in Ephesians 2.28 for work. It, it, means the, it emphasizes the toil, the exhaustion that comes with work. Paul worked hard. And I think the reason that he highlights his own example here in this passage is because of the third angle that I want to look at this verse with you. Uh, from, uh, this third angle from which to look at this verse. The third angle is... This, the Bible's call to work is countercultural. The Bible's call to work is countercultural. It was countercultural in Paul's day, and it's countercultural in our own day. One of the reasons that Paul spoke so strongly about work in his letters is because there was endemic idleness in Greco-Roman culture. Hard work was for slaves and for women. It was not for civilized people, as they said. Paul's uh, work ethic actually brought him into conflict with the church in Corinth. They didn't respect him. The church in Corinth didn't respect Paul because he insisted on working and wasn't ripping them off like other traveling preachers. One of the ways that Paul defended the truth of the gospel to the Corinthians is he said, you know I'm not selling you a bill of goods because I am working for myself. I'm not making money off of you. I'm supporting myself as, as, I, as I teach this, and the Corinthians actually thought he was unimpressive because he did it for free. In our culture, it is becoming increasingly common for young men to settle not into a challenging, hard-working career, but into just enough. You need enough money to get a big TV and a nice car and an apartment and a girlfriend that will tolerate your slack in ways. That's just what you need. And after that, why should you bother to try to work hard? Paul's moving from this idea of stealing to hard work, which is countercultural. And if Paul were a normal teacher in his day, he would stop there. This is where his lesson would end and he would uh, pronounce the benediction and send people home. That's as far as the first century Ephesus went. 
work for yourself. But Paul goes even further than that. He goes from grasping hands to working hands to third, he talks about here, giving hands. Giving hands. Verse 28 tells us why the Ephesian believers are to labor. It says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may, in order that purpose statement, that he may have something to share with those in need. The Bible puts work and reward together. That's true, we've talked about this. But the Bible also tells us very clearly that there are always going to be people around us who have needs. Paul, in this verse, doesn't accuse those who have needs of being lazy. He doesn't help us make decisions in this verse about who may be worthy or who's not worthy of our help. Um, If you read the Bible and look at it broadly, people have needs for all kinds of reasons. Some because they're foolish, some because of injustice, some because of of, uh, a turmoil beyond their control. And our calling is to help people with needs. Paul is describing this new impulse that is supposed to drive the followers of Christ. It's the impulse to give, the impulse to help others who are in financial straits. Paul would have us understand that if you sit down and you decide that you need, I'll draw a number, $30,000 a year to live. Probably some of you in this room, it's more than that. Some of you, it's less. Let's just say $30,000. If you decide, I need $30,000 a year to live, Paul says, work so that you can earn $40,000. Not that you can have a $40,000 lifestyle, but so that you'll have $10,000 to give away. Uh, Consider how radical this transformation is that Paul's talking about. He's moving people from stealing to work, not just to support yourself, but to actually support other people who are in need. Most people, and I bet many of you are in this room, either hate your job or feel like it's a curse. Your life would be a lot better if you didn't have the job that you have. That's the way most people actually feel about work. But followers of Christ labor in part because it provides them with an opportunity to share with those in need. Think about that tomorrow morning when your alarm clock goes off earlier than you want. Today's my opportunity to go work hard so that I have the opportunity to give to those in need. The word share here is an interesting word in in the text, uh, that he may have something to share with those in need. On the one hand, the word share is a good balanced word. It's balanced between hoarding and giving everything away. It's not what Paul's calling. Paul is is not calling you to earn $40,000 and give $40,000 away. He's calling on you to share what you have with others. Uh, When you share, everyone gets something. Sharing. But the word share is also important in this passage because it's a word that the New Testament uses elsewhere for speaking the gospel, for talking to others about Jesus Christ. Paul is suggesting here that when we give to those who have need, we are uh, uh, being conduits of the mercy of Christ. We're representing Christ. Giving like this that Paul's describing is not the same as speaking the words of the gospel, but we're sharing the fruit of the gospel. It's the overflow of the generous grace of Christ. 
What's the connection between meeting other people's needs and the gospel? Why do they connect? The connection is that the impulse of self-sacrificing giving is, is found in God and it comes to us. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. The generous impulse to give self-sacrificially is part of who God is and it's manifest in the fact that while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. That's how God shows us He loves us. He, he died in our place as our substitute on the cross, bearing the consequences for all of our lying, cheating, self-absorbed, loveless ways. And we, we trumpet this message that everybody who turns to Jesus Christ in dependent faith receives forgiveness and life. We trumpet that message. We live that message out when we are driven by that same impulse of self-sacrificing self-sacrificing giving. Brian Chappell wrote this, Generosity of spirit, concern for mercy, and the willingness to live sacrificially are actually presentations of the grace of Christ as though Christ Himself were speaking through us. That's why we work hard so that we can give. I, I can't help it. But when I hear on the news, details about a multi-million dollar lottery, I find myself daydreaming about what I'd do with that money. You're laughing, I bet you do the same thing, right? It's hard to win the lottery if you don't buy tickets, but I still find myself thinking. Usually my mind wanders. It's unhelpful when my mind wanders. Um, I think about a new house or a new car or a new new piece of electronic gadgetry. And usually I think about, about giving money away, all the money that I could give away. I would fund completely every adoption in our church. If you wanted to adopt, I would fund it. Uh, we could build an elevator and I'd put a new building around it. <laughs> Two. I'd help people that I know who are struggling, struggling financially. If I was a recipient of great wealth, I would give my wealth away. Paul enters in here and he knocks on the door of my mind and he says, Joel, you have been given great wealth. You're the recipient of great generosity in Jesus Christ and that he offered himself for you. And when that generosity sinks Deep down into your heart, it frees you for that same sort of work. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we're so grateful to you for your word. Uh, We're grateful to you for how it is um, insightful. You know, don't you? You know, Father, the things that we struggle with. You know about our lying ways. You know about our destructive anger. You know about our tendency to want to grasp things that we haven't earned that aren't ours. We just sneak these things in. They're small things, right? You know us well. Father, this verse speaks to us of remarkable transformation and we come before you 
recognizing that we have the, the fingerprints of the old life all over our hearts and minds, and we want to be transformed by the gospel. You who did not spare your own son for us, work in our minds and hearts that we would be those who labor so that we might, out of the overflow of grace, give to those in need. Open the minds and the hearts of the men and the women that are in this room to to the people around them who are in need. Move us from mere cynical judgmentalism to open-hearted, open-hand compassion and generosity. Help us to choose sometimes to be taken advantage of rather than to be cold and, and cynical. Father, there are those in this room who are, who are uh, uh, thinking not about giving, but who are oppressed uh, by needs. Uh, help them be encouraged by this passage to trust in your generous supply through your people. Huh. May this journey that we're on be a, a blessing to us and to those you call us to serve. Do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.